We begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. We extend our respect to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Hi guys, welcome to Bumps and Besties, a podcast about navigating the journey to motherhood through fertility struggles, friendship and all the bumps along the way. I'm your host Lexi, along with my co-host and bestie. Hi, I'm Amy. Our podcast is here to explore the often tricky, usually emotional path to motherhood through the lens of two besties on two different paths. Laugh with us, cry with us and know wherever you're at on your journey, you're never alone because your besties are here and we have your back. Just a trigger warning, the next episode could contain some uh, sensitive and perhaps graphic content. If you feel like you're going to be triggered by this, perhaps take it slow or skip it for now. Hello and welcome to episode three. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, whatever time of day it is. <laughs> wherever you are and where, whatever time you are listening to this, welcome to Bumps and Besties. So let's check in this week, what has been happening for you? This week we are dealing with teething still. I have a feeling that this is going to be a continuation of the week before and hopefully we are going to come through this with a beautiful little smile and he's just going to go back to being my little angel child. Currently he flips from being a sweet loving soft gentle boy and some kind of demon child from hell so (laughs) you know that's the whirlwind of parenthood welcome where are you at this week so we have just done an embryo transfer so that's what i will take you through today kind of step by step what happens what happened in the days leading up to um but yeah we hopefully have a little baby on board this is so exciting and just remind everyone what round we are on for you so this is transfer five so yeah we are still doing one embryo at a time because each of the successful pregnancies i have had have been very high risk um so we are just doing one embryo at a time taking it slow and steady and then touch wood this if this doesn't work we might look at doing more than one down the track but for the toll on my body and if it all goes according to plan the toll on the baby we just stick with one for now yeah absolutely and that is that an australian thing because i feel like i've seen on tiktok because that's where everyone gets their information about IVF. in america it seems to be quite common to put in more than one i think so but i also think it comes down to a lot regarding your age so when i started they made it very clear to me so my clinic and my doctors At the beginning, they didn't even want to entertain the idea of more than one embryo. It is a higher risk pregnancy to have multiples and you do have obviously that increase if you've put multiple embryos in there. Uh, So they they don't want to put that pressure on you if they don't deem it necessary. So until you hit 35 kind of thing, they don't see it as your time is running out and you don't need to so desperately have two embryos implanted. Yeah as it gets further on like at this stage now they consult me and they say are we just doing one this time and give me more of an option because obviously we've had the recurrent miscarriages along the way so 
if it comes down to you have the recurrent miscarriages or that you have multiple failed cycles, mm -hmm. then they will consider doing the multiple embryos in the hope that at least one will implant yep. and last the whole way. Otherwise, if you are over 35, when you begin the IVF process, they also are more inclined to let you transfer multiple because you don't have as long to go through the process as someone who's in their late 20s does. Yeah. So, yeah, so I definitely think it's an Australian thing that they're a lot more cautious, but it definitely is an age thing as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you are having the transfer this week. So are you going to go through this episode and tell us from your beginning of doing other hormonal um injections and then move through to the point where you got to ivf and then where you're at this week today what yeah so we had a transfer a couple of days ago but i'll go back a little bit further than that and just explain kind of how we got to this stage first because it's not as straightforward as just putting an embryo in yeah <laughs> so i'll go a bit back so basically just to recap in very basics how an IVF cycle works is you have your stims medication to begin with so mm -hmm. that's the medication where you'll see people putting injections into their stomach and that's what makes the follicles grow so that's what we're trying to collect eggs so for us we still have eggs from a stim cycle from last year okay so depending on your stim cycle how well your body reacts to the medication how many follicles you get from that how many eggs you get from those follicles all that kind of thing is to how often you have to do that process it's a very intense process because you have to go through the collection procedure every time yeah it's just a lot more so the more follicles we can get from that the better yeah in my case because i don't have many follicles each time so we did a stim cycle we got one follicle and one egg and one embryo we did another stim cycle got one follicle one egg one embryo sure so it was only our last stim cycle that we did late last year uh actually probably around august, july august last year mm -hmm. that we actually ended up with four embryos from that okay. one so that means you don't have to go through the entire process again yes yeah, so that gave us four opportunities to transfer without having to do all the injections into the stomach the collection procedure and everything like that so with my collection procedures i do them slightly differently to I guess most people, mm -hmm. we do them at an external clinic that does it while you're awake. So it saves you a chunk of money because you're not having that anesthesia fee mm -hmm. for the collection. Mm -hmm. Now, again, kind of like Lexi mentioned last week, there are people online who are all for medical intervention, people who are against it. There are some people who say that they prefer to do it awake anyway, so they don't have the anesthesia running through their bodies while they have the eggs there yeah. there's no proven correlation that it actually affects anything but it's just something more comfortable with it um for us it's a cost thing i can keep doing these rounds over and over if i am happy to be awake for each one because it's thousands of dollars we're talking saving yeah. and that's the anaesthetist fee isn't it yeah so that's just the putting you under or sedating you like so there's still some medication there's mild sedation so yeah. i get the green whistle um some valium panadol and from there it's enough that it's not agonizingly painful but mm -hmm. it's definitely uncomfortable and if you've ever had an IVF cycle if you're familiar with it the way they collect the eggs is they put a an extremely large needle into your uterus and kind of suck them out so yeah. it's definitely uncomfortable and I understand why most people want to be asleep for the process mm -hmm. for me it's just a matter of if I was going to do it 
asleep, we wouldn't afford to do more than a few rounds. Luckily, like I had a wonderful gynecologist who I saw before we started the IVF. She doesn't do this option to do it without the anesthesia. Mm -hmm. So if I'd have kept seeing her, we probably would have been over and done with by now because I could not afford to keep doing the varies between eight and twelve thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. And when you say we'd be over and done, you mean that if you had done the rounds with her and they'd be unsuccessful, you would stop trying. We would have exhausted the funds to be able to do so. We we probably wouldn't have been able to afford to do it. You know, we've had four collections now. Yeah. So, you know, that's up to twelve thousand dollars each time plus that's all your insane. medicine fees that's and everything. Crazy yeah. It's, you know, this way it's a much lower cost. It just involves me being awake for that collection process. So I guess it's just, it is only 20 minutes. It's very uncomfortable. It's not fun at all. But each time I'm like, well, this is another two or three rounds we're going to have the money to spend on if we need to rather than being asleep. Yeah, absolutely. So should we start at the beginning in terms of, you and your hubby have just gotten married and you've decided you want to have a baby. What, where did you go to from there? Let's, let's go all the way back. Uh, so we met working together. We worked together for a while. Uh, we didn't actually get along at all, could not stand each other, didn't want to <laughs> of each other. So it all happened that we all went out one night for a friend's birthday. Everyone got extremely intoxicated. And obviously as everyone has a bit more liquid courage, they're more open to chatting and speaking to new people and we did um we spent the whole night talking and I guess we were away from work so the stresses weren't involved and you know we were all just having fun and from then we're inseparable which is weird uh (laughs) (laughs) always the way isn't it the person that annoys the absolute heck out of you and then you meet in some kind of different environment and all of a sudden the vibe is 100% there yeah so we dated for a few years. We got married in 2016. Before we got married, we start, said, you know, like, I've been on the pill for so many years, like, I'll come off it. And that way, you know, we're ready to jump in and start having a family. So I hadn't been on the pill for a few months before we got married. And I was hoping that was just kind of going to regulate my cycle. It did not. So we were pretty much trying straight away. After about, you know, three to four months of things just not happening at all we decided I was like you know I have to pay more attention to this I have to like start tracking my ovulation tracking my cycle see what's going on and um, how old were you at this time I was only 22 so it's really quite young, young. Yeah. I have PCOS as it runs in my family so I've always known that my cycles have been very out of whack I can have months without a period I can have very long periods they can be very heavy and painful so my hormones are all over the shop at the best of times Mm -hmm. they've never you know I've not been that person who has the 28 day cycle they know when they ovulate or anything like that Mm -hmm. we did then track and try for another about eight months just over 12 months total where we were trying and nothing was happening so then we went to the gp and was like hey look this is what's happening my gp is the best like she is so supportive she is kind of lets me drive where things are going but always giving me all of the available options and obviously input and recommendations so she said 
that she would look at of a fertility ovulation inducting medications pretty much straight away. Being that I was that young and nothing was happening, you know, there was not even a chemical pregnancy or any, there was nothing happening yeah. at all. So we did, we got a referral to the gynecologist, the specialist, and immediately, basically upon walking in, they said, yep, yeah, you've got your PSOS, like we're going to put you straight onto these medications, we're going to put you onto the letrozole, it's going to basically make your body ovulate and it's hopefully because as we do blood tests along the way we can test right before you ovulate we're going to scan we're going to see when those follicles are ready we're going to be in complete control and basically know where it's going to happen so we can make sure intercourse is at the exact right time for this to result in pregnancy yeah just for those who don't know you can't just have sex once and it no. just magically works i mean i'm sure that that happens out there but so much of pregnancy comes down to timing, doesn't yeah. it? And it's such a short window that you have. And depending on, you know, your partner's sperm quality and how long they live for, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's very specific as to when you have to have sex for it to work. So we started doing Electrozole, which is a medication that is an ovulation induction, which makes your body ovulate. We did all the blood tests. We did the scans. We knew when I was going to ovulate. So we timed everything perfectly. We did that for six rounds of the letrozole and nothing, absolutely nothing happened at all. So there was not, again, even a scare, nothing. So at this point, my gynecologist said to me, like, we probably only do a few more rounds of this and then we need to probably discuss IVF. Like, you can't stay on these medications forever. Yeah. Um, and is that because there's side effects of taking there medication? Is. So letrozole is actually a drug they also use for treating breast cancer. Really? Okay. So a lot of these drugs have all these different crossovers, but letrozole is newer. It's, they only use it frequently in the last, say, five to ten years. Before that, it was Clomid. Clomid is definitely the most popular one overseas. Um, it's always been the go-to ovulation induction medication. But so it's now just proven that letrozole has highly, slightly higher live birth rates. So we started with the letrozole, um, but obviously because it is a drug that treats other things and has all different side effects, it's not something you can stay on long term. Yeah. So after six rounds of it, she said to me, like, we're coming to the end of where, how long we can use this for um, safely. We need you to come off it over the next couple of months. So we probably need to start looking at our next options. And so you did those six rounds back to back. So for six yeah. straight months, you were on letrozole. Yeah. Okay. Fertility hormones are a lot like pregnancy hormones. Yeah. You're tired, you're bloated, you put on so much weight. It's not fun at all. Yeah. So we finished the six round electrosol and I said to her, if we only have a few more rounds of this, I want to try Clomid. I'd had a close family member have success with Clomid. Um, I'd heard a lot more about it. There's a lot more information readily about it and the pregnancy rates are a little bit higher. Yeah. So I kind of pushed to let me have a go at that. Um, so she did, and we did three rounds of that mm-hmm. and still nothing, absolutely nothing at all. So then my gynecologist sat me down and said, look, you're young, you're healthy, like we can't keep putting you through this, like you just need to have a baby and this is not working. Mm-hmm. You need to look at doing IVF. Mm-hmm. Um, we can look at doing IUI and things like that. But- and what's IUI? So IUI, it's similar to how you're doing the letrozole and the Clomid. We still take those medications, but what you do is instead of just having sex at the point of your ovulation, you actually uh, inseminate. 
So that's retrieving your partner's sperm or donor sperm, however you're doing it, and then actually inseminating it, whether you do it at home or in the clinic or in the hospital, there's multiple different ways, but it's down to a strict timing. So often they will do a trigger shot. So it's very similar to IVF in that they determine that you are ready to ovulate or you're ready to release that egg. And you do the trigger shot. So they know that exactly 36 hours later is when you are going to ovulate. And that's when they will do the insemination. We were effectively doing that without the timing but knowing pretty much timings anyway, um, we didn't think that that was going to be of much help to us. Yeah. Uh, so looked at going straight into IVF. Began IVF in September 2021. Start off with a stim cycle. The first stim cycles, that's when you're doing the injections into the tummy. Mm -hmm. Um, the dosage of the hormones was not enough. I was not getting barely any follicles. They were not at the right size. My body was not responding. So then we upped the medications until we found the right dose, until my body looked like it was responding. And is that because just everybody's body is different? So they need to sort of tread cautiously when they're doing the dosage so they don't say overdose you and yeah hyperstimulation makes you so so sick and can be incredibly dangerous so they always start low if they hyperstimulate your ovaries you can't do an IVF cycle anyway because you've got way too many follicles um they basically have to empty them then your body almost goes into like a state of shock you get really sick wow. they want to avoid doing that at all costs so they always start off really low to see how your body's going to react and from there they work up to a dose that your body seems to be responding to. Sure. Yeah. So it took us a couple of months to get to a point where my body seemed to be responding to the dose. Even still, though, I only had two or three good-sized follicles each time. We don't know for sure if that has to do with my PCOS. Um, my egg reserve has always looked fine. Like, there's nothing to indicate that I have a low egg reserve or anything. Mm -hmm my body just does not respond to the medication very well. So we w have been doing the highest dose possible for the last uh, eight months or so. Yeah. So the first couple of retrievals, we only got one follicle. Now, when you get a follicle, your egg is inside the follicle. Okay. There is no guarantee that egg will be good. Okay. And then there's no guarantee that if that egg is good, that it will fertilize. And then there is no guarantee that that will actually be an appropriate embryo to transfer back into you. So getting one follicle each time is extremely unlucky, yeah. um, but we were very lucky in the fact that it did result in an egg, which resulted in an embryo that we could transfer the first time, yeah. which we did. We got pregnant. I was thinking, great, this is going to work. I'm going to be one of those people who, you know, does IVF once and has their baby and everything is perfect. It was a bit up and down. So we actually thought at the beginning of the pregnancy I was having an ectopic. I was having very slow rising HCG. So it wasn't doubling in the time it should have. Um, nowhere near close to. Yep. And what was your GP telling you during this uh, these early stages when things so weren't progressing the way that they should? So for the first few weeks, I didn't really see my GP much. So there's um, the nurses and the doctors at the clinic who mm -hmm. kind of, they monitor you every, depending on how within the normal ranges your pregnancy is. Mm -hmm. So if you come in and your blood tests are all looking perfect, they might monitor you once a week or once every two weeks. My initial HCG read was great. It was perfect. It was all right where we should have been. It was like, wonderful, you're pregnant, this is working. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. And then... As it went on, we, they do, so they check in every now and then. They The first couple of weeks we checked every, say, three days. Mm -hmm. And and we, when you say check, do you mean you were having blood, blood tests? tests. Yeah. yeah, so we were doing blood tests to check what the HCG levels were. Um, we realised it was 
slower than it should have been, but it wasn't showing anything majorly concerning for the first couple of weeks. Sure. It was just slightly delayed, but everything seemed to be growing. Everything seemed to be fine. So we just let it go. Mm-hmm. Then I woke up one day and just felt like things, all the symptoms I had had disappeared. I wasn't feeling nauseous. I wasn't feeling tired. I felt too good. Yeah. And I thought this isn't right. Like, so I shouldn't feel so good this early on. Yeah, so you were having all the standard early pregnancy, nausea, fatigue. You were having yeah. all of that. Uh, so for me, and everyone is different, as soon as it's implanted, I just get this wave of fatigue where I am flawed. I am yeah. usually someone who runs on very little sleep. I operate on five to six hours a night. I'm not a napper, never have been. But I'd get to 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I would be passed out on the couch. Like yeah. that's And that's been the same for me with every cycle that's had an implanted embryo. Mm-hmm. I am just flawed at the beginning. So that's kind of the first indication for me that, something has happened. The nausea starts kicking after a couple of weeks. Yeah, it was going as normal as yeah. we would have expected it to. Yeah. And then I woke up one day and I felt too good. And I thought, this isn't right. Like suddenly I don't feel nauseous. I don't feel tired. I don't feel like, I know they say you start to feel better, but not this early on. Mm. Like it's yeah, but worse. usually second trimester is when you start to feel good. Yeah. It was too early for things to start feeling good. And of course, Google is your worst enemy because some yeah. people are saying on Google, oh, it's completely normal. Um, I think for me, my gut feeling just wasn't right. So I rang my clinic. I said, look, I know I'm not due for another blood test for about a week, but I feel really off can I come in for another one and they're great they're always like yep no problem come on in not a worry so I did I went in and I had another blood test and it had slowed to almost a plateau I think the increase in my HCG was like a hundred and I was in the thousands by this point so it should have been going up by thousands and it just wasn't yeah they almost basically called it stopped because it had slowed so much so okay like this is this is a plateau this isn't wonderful like you know we have to keep a very close eye on this you know maybe it'll uptick again but we will do a blood test every 48 hours and see what's happening yeah so we did and the next couple of blood tests over that week showed that it wasn't rising barely at all like it was going up by 100 or 50 or 80 and it wasn't doing what it was supposed to do and so for those who haven't sort of been through this process you're how many weeks along and what is the normal expected level so the parameters are very broad and this is the thing this is why they're very hesitant to call anything and make any set in stone decisions so at my clinic they like your first hcg reading which is the equivalent of being about four to five weeks pregnant to be in the kind of two to four hundred range um that's where they're happy with it it should then double every 48 hours so by the time you get to say six weeks pregnant it should be in the thousands and by the time you get to 12 weeks pregnant it could be in the hundreds of thousands so you know it everyone kind of once you get to the eight to 12 weeks it can start to drop off along the way but up until at least eight weeks it should be increasing steadily and rapidly so we did the couple of extra blood tests and it showed that it wasn't going up or it was barely going up so they had said to me look this is probably going to be an ectopic pregnancy like it is still increasing we've had no bleeding so you haven't had a miscarriage but we're concerned that it's growing in your fallopian tube yeah. um, that can be quite dangerous it can be so, life-threatening yeah so an ectopic is when it hasn't fallen down mm-hmm. into the area where the baby can then grow it's gotten stuck somewhere yeah along so the, the embryo's gotten stuck 
in your fallopian tube rather than making its way all the way into the uterus um, it can't grow inside a fallopian tube it will yeah. rupture it will burst the embryo won't survive and the mother has a chance of not surviving yeah. so they are dangerous yeah extremely so often get like some extreme pain with that as well mm-hmm. and i wasn't experiencing any of that pain so they said no but you know not everyone does we might be catching it early but they were very set in the mind frame that I was having an ectopic pregnancy and that was that. So I was terrified. I was absolutely crapping myself. And could Um, they scan you at that stage or is it too early to see anything? So you generally can't see anything till they like to say between six and seven weeks to be Mm -hmm. safe. Mm -hmm. So this was at about six weeks. I think it was like a day after six weeks. Sure. And they said to me, you're going to have to go for an emergency scan. Like we need to confirm it's a topic. And then we need to do basically a DNC, which if you've had um, an abortion or a miscarriage is where they go in and they remove the tissue from your uterus Mm -hmm. so that you don't get an infection, that kind of thing. So I went in for a scan the next morning and hubby came along and we were, pretty subdued like we were prepared for you know they're going to confirm I've had an ectopic pregnancy and we're just going to have to go about our way and let it do its thing and then we'll start again yeah so imagine our surprise when we walk in and the sonographer goes there's your baby and then puppy so your sonographer wasn't aware of the reason you were going in they had put it down as an early pregnancy scan um irregular hcg so there was a chance, so she didn't say anything until she'd seen it and until she'd con- listened, like, and confirmed the heart rate herself because mm-hmm. she was very quiet for a few minutes, which really had me on edge. I'm the kind of person where I just want to know what's happening. Just talk me through it as you're doing it. Like, just keep me informed. Mm-hmm. But she was very quiet. Um, she wasn't saying anything. She was changing positions. She was changing angles. And I could almost sense some confusion from her, but not nothing majorly this scary. And mm-hmm. then she went, okay, and I think out of, I thought I saw something out of the corner of my eye and mm-hmm. so did my husband because mm-hmm. he's sitting next to me. We're looking up at a screen on the wall behind us and we're like, hang on a second. Like, did, did you see what I just saw? Like, did you think you saw what I saw? Because yeah. at that stage, like the fetal pole, it's a small little, it, it almost kind of like looks like a little spot with a line through it. Yeah. But it can move, right? Yeah, exactly. And so they've got the, um, like, I don't know what the terminology says, so please excuse me. They've got your, some, like, your wands and everything, and they're doing your ultrasounds, but there's colours on the screen. So there's mm. patches of blue and there's patches of red and, you know, where there's vibration activity. So they're looking and... at that stage with the blue and the red. It's about, like, where the blood is moving in and out of your body to see if, like, the right blood is coming in and out of your body because obviously when you're pregnant the blood circulates through your uh embryo and through your body it pumps constantly back and forth yeah so we're both looking at the screen thinking like we're thinking we're seeing something but not quite sure obviously um and so yeah and then she stops and she's pauses it on the screen so that's that's your embryo like that's your baby And that's its heartbeat. And we were like, hang on a second, what do you mean? And she played the little wave on the screen. She's like, you are just over six weeks and there is a really good, strong, steady heartbeat. Like, this is what we want to see in perfect early pregnancy scan. Which is fantastic. It was great, but we were both just like, what? Like, we came in here expecting to be confirming that we were having an ectopic. There wasn't supposed to be a fetus there wasn't supposed Mm. to be an embryo there wasn't we'd come in with the you know mindset that we were just confirming the worst yeah so it almost took away from that first little bit of joy that 
oh, hang on, this isn't so bad because we were like, well, now where does that leave us? Why is my HCG not doing what it's supposed to? Like, how can I have this perfect little embryo with this perfectly strong heartbeat and not have the HCG be rising? Like, this is not adding up. Yeah. So it was back to the clinic who were just as confused as we were, to be honest. Um, in their eyes, there shouldn't have been a progressing pregnancy and they were still very firm with me that they didn't see it progressing the whole way. Yeah. I guess that's kind of where I let the hope overrun what my doctors were saying mm-hmm. because I was like, well, you guys didn't see what I saw. And, mm, you know, absolutely. You, it's it's very hard to hear that you're not going to progress with this pregnancy and then see something completely different on the screen in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. And also it's not always like that for everyone. Yeah. At six weeks, Ted did not look like anything on a screen. Like it's, when I got scanned at six weeks because I was so unwell, there was nothing. They couldn't see a fetal pole for me. They couldn't see a sack. Nothing was visible. They certainly couldn't hear a heartbeat. There's often not a heartbeat at all, and that was the thing. They often say that there's no heartbeat till at least after seven weeks. So that's why it was so confusing that it was such good results. Mm. Like it was so early, and we were seeing everything as early as possible. Yeah. And I was like, how can we have this embryo be hitting all these milestones and yeah. be basically top of its class, but not having the HCG rise. So, of course, I get to Googling and, you know, there are very rare cases where, like, there's a 3% chance that you can have slow-rising HCG and have a viable pregnancy, but, you know, it's not common. And my doctors are reinforcing this, like, please, like, be prepared. And I was kind of like, eh, you guys aren't seeing what I'm seeing. We went back for, so we went for weekly scans following this. Um, They wanted to check the growth rate and just, try and get a better idea of what was happening because the HCG levels weren't giving us a clear indicator now. So we went for follow-up scans um, and the follow-up scans showed the same. The embryo had had grown. It was a few days behind schedule, but it had grown seven days worth of growth in seven days. Yeah. Um, The heartbeat was increasing. Everything was still looking really good. Yeah. So we had three scans. HCG still wasn't doing what it was supposed to, but baby was looking good each time we were kind of just getting that little bit more hopeful um we were kind of almost getting to that safe point so then you know 12 weeks is generally your safe point Mm. which drops off and we were getting really close so we're like you know we've done this like for whatever reason it's not been normal of course nothing is normal with me but we've done it and nothing is normal with just babies in general General. it's such a wide spectrum of what can result in a positive pregnancy as exactly. well. That's the hard thing. Yeah. So we had done all our scans together until this point because we didn't know what was going to happen. And then the next time we were due for a scan, Harvey uh, had to work. So because we have our own business, it's not always easy to move or cancel or reschedule a client. Um, and he had said, like, do you, what, what do you want to do? And I said, no, look, they've all been fine so far. Like, don't worry, I'll go by myself. It's not a big deal. But I had woken up a couple of days earlier with this sense of dread and it was like five o'clock in the morning and I was up right awake and I was like something is really really wrong there was no pain there was no bleeding there was no cramping I just had this sick to my stomach feeling that something wasn't right but again nothing unusual was happening with my body so I rang the sonographer who I had scan booked in with and I said to them like look this is what's happening I probably won't be coming back to this clinic again uh, purely because I felt like the receptionist had absolutely zero empathy she was like no you're fine nothing's happening to you you've got no pain you've got no bleeding like 
at this point it was during COVID. She's like, I don't have doctors on call that can just fit you in. Like you're going to have to wait. Um, And she was very blasé and quite cold about the whole thing. And I'm saying to her, no, something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And she's like, but you can't pinpoint and tell me what's wrong. So you're going to have to wait two days for when your scan is booked for. Put it out of my mind. I was like, well, they say nothing's wrong. Nothing's happened. Like I'm not bleeding. I'm not in any pain. Like maybe I'm an overly anxious person anyway. So maybe I'm just being more anxious than I need to be. Like, yeah, don't stress about it. When you're pregnant, you have so many extra hormones running through your body and the existential dread that you feel when you're pregnant, it just like can play with your mind so much. Yeah. So I think it's so unfair when people just go, oh, no, she's fine. Don't worry about it. It's just normal. And there's so much that's like, well, it might be. But if the mum knows that something is wrong, it's so hard to get other people to understand what's going on because everything just gets chalked up to hormones. So often when you feel sick or you feel tired or you feel something's wrong, if you're pregnant, they just go, oh, it's just hormones. Yeah. And look, I it was just like the sonographer I had at this ultrasound clinic was wonderful I'd had her each time so I had been referred to a different ultrasound clinic to then had done my first couple this one was very specifically for pregnant women with high-risk pregnancies and the sonographer was actually a doctor as well as a sonographer so she could very um what is it she was she was qualified to make comments as she was reading those scans. She was yeah. very much in the loop of what she was seeing. Yeah. So, so most sonographers, you train as a sonographer. You're not a doctor, mm-hmm. but there are specific OBs who are trained with radiology so that they can make the comments of what is actually happening and give you an idea of diagnosis during scanning. So a yeah. sonographer obviously they're seeing this stuff day in day out and they might read the report afterwards but they will only take the pictures and then the pictures go off to a doctor the doctor writes the report and then the sonographer can see it or read it but they're not usually the ones that are commenting oh this is this or this is that yeah so i was very lucky that i did have a sonographer who was also a doctor for these scans yeah um she was lovely i cannot fault the rest of the clinic i just wasn't comfortable with the reception and how they handled it Mm. And it wasn't my normal fertility clinic either. It was a completely separate clinic. So anyway, scan day came around. I'd push it out of my mind. It'd be fine. Hubby's going to go to work. I'm just going to go and have the same scan I've had every week for the last five weeks. And they're going to tell me that my baby is fine and they don't know why my HCG is doing what it is. Yeah. So I walked in. All is normal. I, you know, get into position. Gel's all on me. And... I could just tell the sonographer, she went super quiet. She wasn't commenting on anything. She wasn't chatting with me like she normally did. It just didn't seem right. Um, And then she waved the wand over my uterus and I looked at it and I said to her, there's no heartbeat there anymore, is there? And she went, no, there's not. I'm really sorry. So I think by that point I had seen enough scans that I knew what had happened. And this is what my doctors have been telling me all along was going to happen. So in hindsight, your doctors are very experienced people. They know what the chances and the likelihoods are of things happening. Yeah, but nothing can sort of compare to when you're invested in something. You can be told something point blank by a doctor, but if you want that, it can be really hard to accept it until they give you the call that, it's not going ahead, you yeah. are always going to hold on to the what if. Well, you know, am I the, the exception maybe. to the rule? Like yeah. there are people out here who are, you know, yeah. there is. there were few and far between stories, but there were the occasional stories. Yeah. So, you know, I had in my head the whole time, like maybe I was going to be the exception. 
these days I am a lot more on board with what my doctors tell me. Not that I wasn't on board in the first place, but I just felt like, yeah, maybe you're wrong kind of thing. Yeah, like, absolutely. You know, and it was your first experience in this as well. And, you know, at the end of the day, like when what you're seeing is conflicting with what somebody else is telling you, it can be so hard to accept that it's going to end in the worst possible outcome. Yeah, exactly. Because no one wants that. No. So, yeah, so that was really rough. I was actually okay in the clinic. Um, I think I was just in shock. There was no tears. There was no emotion. Um, The sonographer, you know, she asked if I wanted her to stay or go. I told her she could go. They told me to take my time. I just got dressed straight away and took myself to the car, rang my husband, told him what had happened. I guess the emotion didn't really set in at the time too because there wasn't anything different happening in terms of my body because it's what they call a mis- miscarriage. You're not bleeding. You're not cramping. You're still experiencing most of the symptoms that you've got. Like, except for that pit of dread in my stomach I had a couple of mornings earlier, there was yeah. nothing to indicate physically that something was happening yeah. to me. Um, and also, like, the diagnosis from a doctor does not immediately affect in terms of oh, okay, now I'm going to have all these symptoms because I've been told something. Yeah. Exactly. Like your body's still going to do whatever your body was doing before you got the information. Yeah. So, and while there is still at this point a fetus in there, like your body is still very much acting as if it's pregnant because yeah. it hasn't had any indication otherwise. Yeah. So then it was a matter of, okay, well, how are we going to deal with it? Oh, is it going to happen naturally? Am I going to have to take medication? Do I want to go for a DNC? Like, what do we actually want to do? So it was right before Easter. I didn't want a DNC. Um, I knew the risks were low, but there is a risk of damaging the lining during a DNC. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want even the slightest risk that there had to be. So I also didn't want it to drag out for weeks on end. So with my GP, we had decided that medication was probably my best way forward. Yeah. Um, so after you got the information, did you go straight to your GP to make a plan? Or- so I went back to my clinic and they had the report mm-hmm. and they said, look, we're very sorry. Like this, as I've told you, like this is what's happened. Um, we're not going to, they're, they're kind of there to help you get pregnant, but they're not there to manage the rest of it. So they said, you kind of need to make a plan with your GP and the hospitals about how you want to take care of it. So I went back to my GP. We had a few conversations, you know, we just felt with my anxiety, I'm always an anxious person mm-hmm. that writing it out and waiting for it to happen naturally was not going to be good for my mental health. Yeah. So this was though out at like 10 a.m. on the Thursday morning before Good Friday. Yeah. So bad time. We had to act really quickly. But because we had thought that we get into the hospital that afternoon, they were still open till four o'clock, yeah. and it's a relatively quick appointment. They can prescribe you the medication on the spot. They go through the whole appointment takes about an hour start to finish because yeah. you actually go home and take the medication at home. She had made a call to the hospital. I had made a call to the hospital, and we were both very confident that we could get in and be seen that afternoon yeah. and that, you know, I could manage it at home over the weekend. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, most of the doctors had actually left by about midday on Thursday. So, And also, like, still COVID. Yeah, and so. still in the peak of COVID. So the hospital early pregnancy department basically said, we're really sorry, but we cannot put you in to see you this afternoon. There's nothing we can do unless it becomes an emergency and you present to emergency. But 
in that case, you would have to be bleeding or hemorrhaging or something would have to be wrong with you. Like if you yep. present as you are now, they're going to turn you around and tell you to go home. <laughs> so I also actually rang around to my first gynecologist that I had been seeing because the problem is just finding someone to prescribe the medication. Yep. They generally have to be a doctor that has seen you or a specialist who has seen you or someone who's confident they're making the right call. No, you can't just walk into a gynecologist in a private clinic and be like, hey, can you write me a script for this medication? Yep. It's not going to happen. But because I had seen a couple of the gynecologists at this original clinic and they knew me and they treated me for quite a while, I got straight on the phone to them. I got a hold of their nurse who said, if I had a doctor here, I'm confident they would write it for you, but I don't because being that it is Thursday before Easter, most of them have left, two of them have gone into state, like there is no one here to actually do it for you. She was a gem. She rang a lot of their sister clinics and like other private doctors they knew and explained the situation, but there was just no one around. They rang back my fertility clinic and same thing. There is, at the time there was three main doctors there, two of them had already left and one of them was booked right up and there was no way they were going to see me. They said to me, look, there's probably nothing will happen over the weekend you know it's been a few days nothing's happened as yet but you're just gonna have to organize to come back and see us next week and we'll go from there yeah. well of course as murphy's law is it happened on the saturday so my in-laws had come down um we had gone out for the day they they had they are the best. Like my in-laws were like, what do you want to do? Do you want some time to yourself? I was mm. like, no, I just want to live my normal life. Like, And how were you feeling at this particular time? I was still feeling quite normal. Like yeah. there was no pain. There was the fatigue had started to ease. Like I was feeling pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was nothing to say. You know, I didn't feel yuck. I didn't feel sick. I just felt like I'd felt for the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So... We had plans to see them for Easter. They'd asked what we wanted to do. And I said, no, I still want you guys to come down. I just want things to be relatively normal. I don't want people to walk on eggshells around me. Like this could still take weeks. Like I don't want to hide myself up in a hole for weeks on end. I was a little bit anxious about leaving the house. Like what if it happens while I'm out? But so I would only go out for really short periods. But at this stage, I was told it wasn't likely to happen straight away. And had your GP given you an indicator of what it would present like when it was time not really not we didn't really talk about what happened if it came on naturally because that wasn't the plan yeah so So you were always we had planned to do it with the medication so there was no real conversation about what i should expect if it happened spontaneously um because it just wasn't something we thought would happen from what i had researched and the few questions i had asked it had indicated that it would be like a heavy period it would just be a lot of bleeding basically so Saturday came around and we went out for a couple of hours um, with my in-laws. We came home. Everything seemed fine. Um, Nothing out of the ordinary. And then that night, the pain was unbearable. So it just started cramping. And honestly, like I've had some pretty painful periods with my PCOS, but this was like a pain I had never felt. It was extremely intense. Um, Did you think about going to the hospital at that time? Multiple times. Like... I was in so much pain, I was vomiting, and I was like, is something hemorrhaging inside me? Like, is something really, really wrong here? Like, what is going on with me? I think it was about midnight, and I think I sent you a message, like, can you ask Ash if this is normal? Like, should I be in this much pain? Should I go to the hospital? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's just... It's, and his answer was go to the hospital. Go to the hospital. <laughs> yes. If you need to message us and ask us, go to the hospital. Oh, I feel like I'm wasting their time though. They told me I didn't need to and that it wasn't going to be this bad. And it would come in waves. Like it would come in waves and it would stop and then I would just be uncontrollably in pain on the floor again. 
it just, it was absolutely crazy. And then I eventually did start to bleed. Over the course of about three days, I would go through these waves of extreme pain and extreme bleeding and then little bouts of nothing and then back to extreme pain and extreme bleeding. Now, the Tuesday morning rolls around because the Monday was also a public holiday. And I rang the worst time. Absolute worst timing. I'm not someone who's ever presented to emergency for myself. Like I just, our doctors are under stress. We were in the peak of COVID. I didn't want to be someone who was on their plate that didn't need to be. So like, I don't think I should go. And I'm like, you're dying. You need to go immediately. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I can ride this out. I can do this. I've got some Panadine Fort here from, you know, I think my, when my husband broke his ribs, like I'm good. I'm just going to take a couple of Panadine Fort and I'm going to be okay. Uh Um, So strong. And it just wasn't. So Tuesday morning rolled around and I rang the hospital and I said, look, this is what's happened. I am in so much uncontrollable pain. What is happening to me? And it was only then that they put me through to one of the specialists who was there. And obviously they weren't all rushing to go away for the weekend. And they actually read my file and went, oh, you're far enough along that you've actually probably experienced kind of similar to what a labor might feel like. So when you get to a point where where it's about eight weeks, that's when it kind of becomes more of an intense pain. Like this is just a very rough guide. It's not set in stone. For some people, you can have a miscarriage at 10 to 12 weeks and still feel like a period and you can have one much earlier and it can feel much worse. But what I was told is that about eight weeks is when the kind of cutoff for when it would feel like a period is. And after that, you almost are feeling contract, like your muscles are contracting similarly to what they would do in labor because obviously there's more tissue and there's more to expel and all that kind of thing. Because your body then effectively is trying to remove something. Yeah. So the specialist I was speaking to at the time apologized profusely that no one had bothered to check that week before um, and just said to me, like, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but is your muscles contracting similarly to what a labor pain would be because you are, you know, at the end of that 10 weeks. So it's, that's what's happening to you. So I guess that made more sense. And obviously I didn't feel like I was dying anymore. Like it was within reason, but it continues. The pain and the bleeding for me continued on for about two weeks still. Um, Not as intensely, but definitely still continued on worse than a period. And at that point, like there's not really much, like once it's started, it's not like they can then medically intervene to finish it quickly. No, because three days had already passed. Most of what was going to happen had already happened. So the worst of it was kind of over. Uh, There's nothing they could do except kind of wait and to see what happened when I stopped bleeding, um, to see whether I would need medication to help if there was anything left or if I needed DNC or anything like that. Um, I was lucky in the sense that my body did actually a very good job of that um and everything was looking perfect at the end so i went back into the hospital for a scan three weeks after my original call to them and they said like your uterus looks wonderful there's no damage there's no damage to the lining there's no scar tissue like everything is cleared out everything is in good condition there's been no damage you're actually looking very good that for me was because i was still adamant i didn't want that dnc like i didn't want any risk of anything damaging the lining yeah so you yeah. already had enough trouble. There's no point in making more issues. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that was that. And emotionally, it wasn't fun either. Like, mm. it was a really rough time, but I was just like, you know what, let's just do it again. So they, there was no offer of, like, 
you've been through this. It's quite a big trauma. Do you need to go and see a psychologist? We recommend a counsellor at this point. So my GP definitely asked if there was anything I felt that I need to talk about, if I want to see someone, but I felt okay. I think the feelings were normal, general sadness, but I had no severe mood swings. I had no, you know, dark thoughts like there wasn't anything out of the usual like I think the feelings funneled you into a depression no the feelings I had I think were very normal for someone who'd just gone through a miscarriage at home unassisted to be honest with you so I was fairly confident that I was okay so the hospital when I went for that last scan also said you know like here's some pamphlets here's some brochures let let us know if you want to talk to someone I did sit down and speak someone said to you the way you guys treated me on Thursday was absolutely not on and yeah they did their own little, you know, investigation kind of thing. And at the end of the day, like, we all know what it's like coming into a public holiday. Like, everyone just wanted to go home for the Easter weekend and things got overlooked. And yeah, luckily absolutely. that didn't result in anything worse for me. I think but it's it so hard, isn't it? And especially with the com- added complication that COVID was happening and, you know, I think there was probably a lot at that time of people calling to the hospital and they shouldn't have. And yeah. this is why it's so important to have a good GP so that you know that if you are going to the hospital, you're going there for the reason because if you're going there for a stubbed toe, someone like you who desperately needs to get into the hospital can't because the the system's overrun. And and that's it. We have so many people and our emergency departments are so overworked with people that don't need to be in the emergency department and it's infuriating. Like, if you don't need to go to the hospital, please do not go to the hospital. Our poor doctors are so overworked and, yeah, it it doesn't free up space for people who actually do need it. That was that. I thought I was okay. Um, I was okay. We gave it a few weeks. So you can't actually try again at all, you know, have intercourse or your hormones aren't back to normal anyway, Mm. but you need to give your body a few weeks as it is. And then you need to have a proper period before you can even look at going back to fertility treatments. So that was the first one um, and probably the you know, most detailed and intense. So because this ep is already coming out to being pretty long, what we might do is leave you for today and we'll do a part two of this where I might just recap the other cycles a bit quicker because they weren't as intense and they weren't the first time around and then we'll go into what happens with the embryo transfer and I'll walk you through what happened on Wednesday. That's so exciting. Thank you so much for sharing this first part. Um, obviously that first uh, transfer pregnancy and miscarriage was huge mm-hmm. you went through so much and it was awful to have you treated the way that you were and to go through everything that you did and you're so strong and I think that a lot of people are going to listen to this and realize that there is so much more to IVF than a lot of people realize and how much of a long um, journey yes, yeah. absolutely so thank you for sharing that with us guys if you are interested in hearing about the next uh four rounds and the most recent round jump into our next episode we will see you there thanks for being here